welcome back guys to the JPS podcast and this is the first prelude to the podcast as I'm trying to improve the production quality of these moving forward so that I can enhance your listening experience. So before we get into this episode with Peter Fitchin, I just want to let you guys know that we have some big news in June uh, of 2018 with the Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference coming up. We have Mike Isratel, Eric Helms, James Krieger, Alan Aragon, Sohi Lee, and Lane Norton confirmed to be presenting uh, at this epic conference as i said in june on the 22nd to the 24th in melbourne australia we have tickets available and i'll link those in the description box below but it's going to be absolutely epic guys and you don't want to miss out on this so in today's episode we talk with peter fitchin on blending science and practice for bodybuilding peter is a super intelligent guy and he's got a lot of experience in the field also and this discussion was extremely illuminating and i think many of you coaches and competitors will benefit from this so i hope you enjoy the episode make sure you like it subscribe to the channel and enjoy welcome back guys to episode 34 of the jps podcast and on today's episode i have peter fishin welcome peter ah thanks for having me not a problem man so peter is a physique coach He's a pro bodybuilder in the NGA and he's a content provider as well as having his PhD in nutritional sciences and a master's of biology, physiology and a bachelor of biochemistry. So he is quite the qualified man and he's been uh, involved in research for many, many years now with over 17 uh, peer-reviewed research papers. So I'm extremely excited to have Peter on because he's going to give us a brilliant understanding of the science behind a few topics that I think many of you uh, listeners and competitors, coaches will find really value valuable and that is contest prep. So Peter, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you got into research in the first place? Yeah, so I would say, you know, so my background, um, you know, I started lifting weights when I was probably 16 years old, um, you know, the end of my sophomore year of baseball, I, I wasn't that good at sports. I was pretty small. I was about 125 pounds, um, you know, and I'm, I'm about five, eight, five, eight, five, nine, and 125 was not very big. Um, so I started lifting, got into it, was at a local gym where there were a lot of other people who competed. Um, so they saw me make progress. You know, I got the, you know, had those newbie gains, you know, and I was up to about 170 within, yeah, a year and a half to two years of lifting, you know, I, I gained 40, 45 pounds. I was still 170. And if you look at the pictures, it didn't look like I even lifted. I mean, I was still that small. Um, but, you know, I, I had made progress and people noticed and they were like, hey, you know, you should do this show. You know, there's some people at my gym dieting down. And, you know, I got into, um, you know, so I did my first show spring of my senior year of high school at all of 145 pounds on stage. Um, and so, um, needless to say, I, I didn't do that great, but, you know, for whatever reason I was hooked, I, I really did enjoy it. Um, and so, you know, as the years went by, you know, I, I changed my major plenty of times in undergrad. And so I eventually majored in, in biochem and minored in nutrition. Um, and I started realizing I, I enjoyed thing, you know, the science side of the sport, you know, what could I learn in science and school that I could use to, um, you know, help myself compete. And so, uh, you know, that, that led to me going to get a master's degree in, in biology with the physiology concentration. You know, I got my CSCS, uh, and then I, you know, got my PhD in nutritional science. And so, um, you know, it's, you know, I had, you know, I did have some research along the way directly related to bodybuilding. Some wasn't, you know, kind of indirectly looking at, you know, muscle loss or something like that. Um, in like clinical populations, but you know, I, I, I always tell people, you know, it's super hard to get funding to do research on getting jacked, you know, yeah. that's, that's not something that there's a lot of money out there to do. <laughs> so, um, Definitely. you know, and, and so, and so that's kind of how I got into research and, you know, now, now I, you know, I, I still, you know, I, there's a couple projects I'm collaborating on and, but I, I primarily work with clients, you know, helping clients prep for shows and, um, you know, it, it wasn't at all that, you know, where I, you know, I went all like this throughout college, but, you know, or where I expected I'd end up. But, you know, I, I really like what I do. And so, you know, this this is pretty awesome career path, actually. I, I really enjoy it. 
Yeah, well, it's it's phenomenal to see somebody who's you know come through the higher education system, um, obviously got the PhD, then also be able to uh, transition into practice and you know make a successful you know uh, coaching business that applies the science because I think that that's you know a, an issue for not just you know researchers but also coaches as well is you know bridging that gap and I think you do a brilliant job in you know your work at Fit Body Physique uh, in doing that so I guess we're going to talk about both of those things today but let's start with the science because I feel listeners will uh We'll love to hear about the science of uh, bodybuilding uh, first and foremost. So let's get that out of the way. So uh, one of your first studies on bodybuilding was with uh, Brosif's uh, Eric Helms and Alan <laughs> And that was a, a scientific-based approach to natural bodybuilding. And this uh, particular study looked at nutrition and supplementation. So for, for those who uh, you know don't have access to the research publications and you know can't read the full text or haven't been able to you know uh, understand you know the, the literature because sometimes you know these kind of things can be difficult for coaches um, you know what were the main findings uh, in this study if you could just give us the nuts and bolts and what you were looking at yeah so we what we tried to do in this study was you know we realized that there there isn't much in terms of research on direct research on bodybuilders. Even today, you know, it's five years later and, mm-hmm. um, you know, most of the research is still case studies and, and you know, small cohorts. There, there aren't large interventional studies on competitive bodybuilders. And so, you know, we looked at data in dieting athletes predominantly, but where there wasn't data on athletes that just dieting people, you know, um, you know, and so we tried to make the best recommendations possible with the, the data that exists. And so, um, you know, what we ended up, you know, it just, you know, kind of take home points were, you know, things that I, I don't think are a surprise to most of your listeners probably, but, you know, dieting at a slower rate, you know, somewhere around a half a percent to a percent of body weight weekly is probably a good idea to, uh, minimize muscle loss. Um, you know, and even within that, what's interesting is if you look at some of the case studies that have followed up since, those who have stuck to more of the 0.5-ish end of that range typically see less muscle loss than those are cl- that are closer to the 1-ish end of that range. Um, and, you know, you can always get into the nuts and bolts of maybe you can get away with a little faster at the start of prep versus the end and, you know, all of that. But I think long story short is, you know, contest preps probably shouldn't be a sprint. Um you know, and then, and then, yeah, we, we, you know, for nutrition guidelines, you know, some of the protein stuff was based on some of Eric's work um, in terms of those recommendations and, and, you know, kind of generally where to set carbs and fat. And, and that's going to vary from person to person as well, you know, based on progress preferences, you know, things like that. Um, and so, yeah. And then I, if I remember right, we had a peaking section in that paper as well, you know, which basically, you know, there, there's not much science on peaking right. in bodybuilding contests. You know, most of, most of these old case studies where people are doing all the crazy, you know, cutting water, cutting salt tactics. Um, and so I think most of that section was just a rationale on why not to do those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, as a whole, it, it, it was kind of the first paper where, you know, it, it's a lot of the stuff that most people, you go, there's a lot of different groups and forums and whatnot on, on social media and online where a lot of these things are just common knowledge and commonly accepted now, which is pretty cool. But five years ago, they yeah. you know necessarily weren't. Yeah, I remember when this publication came out five years ago. It literally, it did rock the you know natural bodybuilding community uh, to quite a large degree because you know it started to challenge some of the status quo and you know common dogma that was you know within a lot of bodybuilding circles. I think the evidence-based community has grown uh, significantly now. And we, and we almost take it for granted, you know, how much we know because this is our little bubble and where we, we only, you know, uh, work within this. But I still think that there's a huge uh, you know, number of coaches and athletes that aren't privy to this bubble just yet. So, you know, and this is why yes. I like to do uh, these kind of podcasts is because, you know, even though you feel like you're just repeating the same old knowledge time and time again, <laughs> um, and I've, you know, definitely read, I've read your papers and I hear the same things all the time. Um, you know, I think it's still important to understand that there's people out there who just, you know, don't know this even five years on from that study. So um, you also yes, looked at 
you know, timing um, and frequency as well as supplements. So before we get into that, you know, uh, what were the recommendations that you came up with? And I guess, you know, in practice now, so we can use both the, you know, the science and practice, you know, what are the rough ranges for protein, carbs and fat? And then what would be the, you know, lower and upper thresholds uh, or limits for, you know, those um, macronutrients during a contest prep? Because I think this is also important. Yeah, yeah. So for protein, carbs and fat. Um, so, you know, in, you know, in that study and practice, typically you're going to find that someone's protein intake maybe need to be slightly higher when they're dieting for a show than when they're in the off season. Um, if you look at most of the data in people who are, you know, not dieting for a show, they're going to probably be somewhere in, you know, you're going to see studies saying, oh, maybe up to 0 0.8, 0 0.9 grams per pound, maybe one, you know, gram per pound, just err on the side of caution. You know, it, it's, you know, it's something like that you'd commonly hear in people who aren't dieting for a show. You know, when someone enters a deficit, especially if they're training hard and very lean, um, what you oftentimes will see is, is protein needs actually go up. And so this is what Eric did his, I believe his master's on um, was, you know, some of this research. And so, you know, there's evidence that you may need to go up to, you know, 1.2, 1.3 grams per pound of protein. Um, you know, For per day. Australian listeners who don't know what pounds yes. are or ounces and all these crazy things, it's around <laughs> 2.5 to 3 grams per kg. Yes, yes, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, and so, um, you know, you're going to need, you know, you may need a little bit more protein. And, and what's interesting is that with protein research is, you know, since the studies come out, there's been more data, you know, Jose Antonio's lab and I think Bill Campbell's lab now, they, there's been more data where they've done protein overfeeding studies where they feed people much higher amounts of protein than this. And I think a couple of key things that they've found, one is that it's not harmful. If you're a young, healthy person, I think Jose, I think I just saw Jose Antonio's lab had a data on people eating high, eating like two grams per pound for like two years. I could be wrong on that. It might be a gram, gram and a half. I haven't read the full text. I just saw it go across my social media a couple of days ago. And I was like, I was like, man, two years. Cause they previously published a study where they had eaten about oh, 1.5 gram per pound, you know, so up around th probably three gram per kg range for an entire year. Wow. And, you know, and they saw nothing, no negative effects. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a big thing that, you know what I mean? To, to have studies like this now showing, you know, in young, healthy people, these high protein diets aren't, you know, hurting them. Um, and then on the other end, um, the other thing I think is, is kind of cool is there, there is some evidence that overfeeding protein may result in less fat gain. And we're moving away from contest prep here and into yeah. the off season, you know, because, yeah. yes, because during contest prep, if you give some, you only have so many calories available. And so if you, if you overfeed protein and eat a crap ton of protein, if you go up, you know, if you are uh, eating, you know, three grams per kg or more, you know, four grams per kg of protein, um, that's going to limit how many calories you have from carbs and fat. And that's probably going to affect performance and hormone levels and things like that. Um, and so I know we, you know, you'd said where, where should you put carbs and fat? Um, you know, for fat, I would say in, in the paper, you know, we said somewhere between, you know, 20 to 30 percent of calories from fat is, is and that's a probably a good starting point for most people somewhere in that range, you know, and, and maybe dipping below that if you absolutely have to deep in prep to spare some calories. But I really wouldn't dip my fat that low that long. Um, that can lead to some hormone issues and potential health issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I don't if I can at all, if at all avoid it, I really don't like dropping fat below like 20% of calories or so. And, you know, just for that reason, um, during prep, uh, and then carbs are kind of the rest. And so you want to try to get away with as many carbs as you can get away with, but you also need a certain amount of protein to help prevent muscle loss. You need a certain amount of fat to help support hormone production, you know, and, and so, there's going to be a limit to what those, you know, carbs are. And, and all of these numbers are going to differ greatly from person to person. You know, a, a male competitor who steps on stage at, you know, 80 kg is going to be, you know, going to have significantly, you know, especially if he works an active job, you know, younger guy um, is going to be very different than a woman who steps on stage at 50 kgs and, you know, is older, works a sedentary job, you know, things like that. Yeah, definitely. Individualization uh, is mm -hmm. hugely 
important uh, during you know diet setup and even the manipulation of the of the diet throughout the contest prep uh, for multiple reasons, which we will probably start delving into down the track. But let's tackle now you know the timing of meals, um, the frequency, and then the supplements. So with the timing, um, if you want to outline to listeners, you know what the recommendations were um, for protein, carb, fat timings, um, just bang them out quickly as possible and we'll move on to the to the next uh, yeah study. yeah so I mean timing is you know w- you know when I you know talk timing with people you know and, and it, it goes back to somewhat what we talked about in this paper too you know I usually say there's there's two things we kind of get a focus on one is what are you going to stay consistent with mm-hmm. you know and in the paper we talked about how you know there's not a difference between you know six meals versus two or one versus four you know all all of that you know it, it, the data is is all you know isn't necessarily strong it's probably a good idea to have several protein feedings a day and it's probably a good idea to have you know protein within a couple hours after your workout and you know a couple hours or, and and probably before bed you know you know but it, it, the data is not as strong as i don't think you know most people mm-hmm. you know think it doesn't hurt you to have protein every couple hours or you know what i mean to um, you know, have post-workout protein shaker up protein. That's not going to hurt. If anything, it might help slightly. And, you know, I, as a competitor, I'll take something that may help a small amount. You know what I mean? It, it comes yeah. down to what someone's goal is. Um, and so, you know, I think the big thing is, you know, what are you going to adhere? What can you adhere to? Um, and how, what's your performance going to be like in the gym? You know, and so I don't know that we touched on it quite, you know, all that much in the paper, the performance in the gym part. But, you know, some people find that if they have a high carb meal before a workout, uh, they feel tired, sluggish, um, you know, and and they want to go take a nap. Um, You know, it's like post Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Um, And so um, and so, you know, those people probably don't want to have a large carb meal a couple, you know, an hour or two before their workout. But then there's other people who find that if they don't have a lot of carbs, their performance suffers in the gym. You know, and so for those people, I would try to stack, you know, more of your carbs before your workout if, if you're able. Um, and, and so, you know, some of that's going to be individual. But I, I think, you know, when it comes to meal timing and, and number of meals and all of those things, I think the big biggest two things where I would start, you know, you know, looking at it is what can you stay consistent with and what allows you to train, um, you know, hard in the gym. Yeah, awesome. I, I definitely agree with that. And I think. You know, it's been downplayed quite significantly uh, at recent times, um, but I think as the duration of a contest prep uh, gets, you know, larger and larger, the deeper you, and deeper you get into the prep, I think timing becomes increasingly important, not so much from a physiological sense like you're alluding to. I think it's more the psychology and the ability to adhere to the diet. So I definitely think whilst the, there has been a big pushback against, you know, uh, you know, specific timing of meals and everyone's just now throwing their arms up in the air, you know, just eat whenever, like, you know, just within a three-hour window of your training session and, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, obviously, extremes should never be, you know, or are always going to lead to adverse outcomes for most. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, in the context of contest prep, as we get deeper and deeper, it does become more important. And, you know, this comes back to, you know, what you looked at next, which was frequency, um, which was not studied in natural bodybuilding to my knowledge. Um, it wasn't looked no. at. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, we, when we talk about frequency, we're not talking about like the specific times, but we're talking about, um, you know, the intermittent fasting, um, all those kind of things. And I guess the types of meal patterning uh, that are typically associated with, um, bodybuilders would be, you know, the grazing type patterns, you know, that they have, you know, their six, <laughs> six to seven smaller meals. And like I was alluding to that the fasting and, you know, doing what works could be beneficial, um, from an adherence standpoint, do you see this as a potential area of investigation, um, you know, down the track in the natural bodybuilding community? Because I guess, you know, when we're, you know, at extremely lean body fat percentages, and then we fast for 16 hours, you know, or, you know, 12 hours, I would say that that would have, you know, largely, um, you know, differing effects on, you know, mood disturbance and things like this than it would if you were at a higher body fat percentage. So I was just wondering, you know, what your thoughts on that are 
and whether or not you see this as a useful strategy with your own clients. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think the first thing to, to keep in mind is that, you know, at this point, there there's no evidence that intermittent fasting is any better than eating throughout the day. You know, I think a lot of people have them, you know, if you look on the Internet, it tells you, you know, you look at intermittent fasting, it's all these, um, you know, stories about how it, it's significantly better than than eating throughout the day. And, and the data is not there. Um, if, you know, if you match macronutrients, calories throughout the day, um, you're, you're going to see the exact same progress in terms of, of weight loss. You know, yeah, I, I, I wonder you know, I, I do wonder if you're only stimulating protein synthesis in a smaller window versus a you know larger one, what effect will that have? You know, how much of a difference does that make? You know, I, I would assume it would, but I, 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 you know, in practice, you see people who get pretty lean doing intermittent fasting and they're not, you know, wasting muscle either. And so, um, you know, I, again, I think that would be an interesting area to look at, but I, I have seen in clients, I mean, I, I've had clients where, they tend to just do better eating in smaller windows, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with that so long as we're not taking it to an extreme. Um, you know, like I, I don't want them eating all of their food in one meal, you know, like that, that starts looking like a binge eating disorder, you know, and so we, we don't want that. Um, but you know, if, if eating, you know, I don't know, two, three times in, you know, a six, eight hour window or something. And if that works best for them, you know, that, you know, I, I've worked with people where when their intake's low, they can just, you know, they don't have to eat first thing in the morning. You know what I mean? Breakfast doesn't bother them. Um, they're not all that hungry. And so they can make it to like noon without food. And when there's limited food, that can help them stay consistent. Um, I'm not one of those people. I, I, you know, and I work with a lot of other people who aren't who do more of the typical grazing pattern. I probably fall somewhere in the middle. I eat probably four times a day, maybe five um, at this point. Um, you know, so I, you know what I mean? So I, I fall in the middle somewhere there, but you know, I, like you said, I, I really agree that as long as you're not going to extremes, you know, with most things, it's, it's probably okay. I, I don't know that, you know, when you start getting up, you know, you start talking like eating eight, nine, 10 times a day. I, you know, I don't know that that necessarily is necessary. Just like eating once a day probably isn't optimal either. Because I guess there's two, you know, like everything, it's a trade-off, right? If we yeah. aim to improve adherence with a, you know, a longer fasting window, um, mm -hmm. you know, potentially, you know, suboptimal distribution of protein intake, um, you know, if we're getting like one or two big boluses, for example, of, you know, protein, we know that, you know, the leucine threshold and things like this, you know, we're probably not going to be uh, upholding a lot of what we need to do in terms of those uh, spikes in MPS. Um, but if you're adhering and you're losing fat at an appropriate rate to get on stage, um, you know, it's a trade-off. It's like, do you try mm -hmm. to, you know, have four meals, but then potentially, you know, overeat and start binging and your food focus increases. So, you know, I think very much, you know, like we always strive for optimality in a contest prep, but I think there are times when, you know, we need to yeah. put that to the side and like, and as a practitioner, this is what I wanted to ask you, you know, is there a time where you, you have to disregard the science um, to, you know, get the job done and doing something that you know is suboptimal? And this would be a good example. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you know, it, you know, someone, someone's adherence, you know, and, and so it, there, there are times during prep, but I think one thing that's, that's really important too, you know, getting, you know, we're talking about adherence, food focus, things like that is before someone even starts a prep and before they start dieting for a show, where is their relationship with food? Yeah, exactly. Where is their relationship with exercise? Where is their relationship with body image? Um, because if those things aren't, you know, if there's issues there when you're not dieting for a show, uh, they're only going to get worse, you know, also where's that person's consistency, you know, like, so can they consistently follow like a maintenance intake? Like, could they consistently do that? You know, if not, you know, you put them in a deficit, the likelihood that they're going to be consistent when, you know, now you're, you actually have more hunger cause you're in a deficit, um, is, is going to go down. You know, and so I think those are things that, you know, I would first look at, you know, make sure we have these things right before we go into prep. Um, but, yeah, as far as prep goes, I mean, it, you know, there are different people who have, you know, I, on the training side of things, people have different recovery abilities. And so, um, you know, 
the amount of volumes or frequency, you know what I mean, that someone may be doing may not be the by the book, you know, recommended optimal amount or something like that. Um, you know, there there may be movements that certain people just don't get much out of that, you know, are commonly thought you need to do in the gym. And, and um, you know, it, it's OK if as long as you're hitting each muscle group, progressing, providing progressive overload there, there. You know, I always tell people you're you're a physique athlete. There's there's no movement you have to do. Does that I mean, mean you can build. You need to stimulate. Does that mean you can build a set of wheels without squatting? You you could. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I would say you probably still need to hack squat, leg press, lunge, you know, deadlift, things like that, heavy, you know. But um, you know, so you're still going to be doing heavy multi joint movements. But um, yeah, if you can squat and you get, you know, you. I think it's a very good movement to have, you know, be included if, if you can do it, I, I would do it, but you know, there, there may be injury issues or biomechanics or, or preferences or, you know, what, what have you where, you know, maybe that's not going to be something you have included, you know, in, in the plan or in a training block, you know, and maybe you take a training block away from deadlifting or a training block away from squat, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, maybe it's not in every single plan. Yeah, for sure. I think, that's where, as we go, you know, deeper and deeper into a contest prep, we do have to start, uh, yeah, monitoring these things a little more closely because things pop up. And obviously, in a contest prep, we we choose a number of things. You know, a lot of the adverse uh, health effects, uh, but the physical and the psychological, we we choose that as part of the sport, and we also mm-hmm. choose to give up a lot of things. But in you know, giving up our health, we obviously, you know, we want to maintain. Uh, as good a health as possible for as long as possible and you know obviously that comes down to you know an appropriate rate of loss um, appropriate macronutrient uh, setup and all of these kind of things Um, but obviously you know we when eating less food we need to then start supplementing uh, and paying a little bit more attention than we otherwise would if we were you know at maintenance or surplus because you know we need to make up some uh, ground in you know the lack of nutrients um, energy at times. So, um, give us a lowdown. What did this study find? What works? What doesn't? And you know, what yep. doses are required uh, to be effective? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you know the the biggest thing I would say you know is you know also along those lines too before you know supplements is I would still worry about food quality during during prep too. You know, you you should still be eating you know vegetables. It shouldn't be a you know most people's vegetable intake goes up during prep there because they're hungry. You know, but um, and vegetables are generally pretty low calorie, you know, high volume food. Uh, fruit intake is one place during prep that can oftentimes, you know, definitely fall by the wayside. You know, I, I still try to have clients eat some fruit, but you know, it, it's hard to eat a lot of fruit when you know if you're a female down to 80 grams of carbs a day, it, it can be awful hard to, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna eat three bananas, you know, that's your whole day. You get, <laughs> so, you get three blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, I, but I, I still think worrying about food quality and, and, you know, most of your food coming from nutrient dense sources is, is still something I would absolutely, you know, that, that would be the first thing I'd worry about. But then from there, yeah, I, I think during prep, a multivitamin is probably a good idea. Um, especially during prep when you can't have a variety of foods from all food groups. Um, and, and that's one thing, you know, we talked about in the paper, you know, it, it, it's not going to make up for everything you're missing in the foods, you know, a multivitamin has the things that we know, you know, have the main vitamins, minerals that we know you're going to get sick if you don't have these, you know, you know, if you're deficient, you're going to have health consequences, but there are other compounds in food that, you know, aren't bottled up in your pill, you know, and every compound you find in an apple or every compound you find in blackberries, you know, isn't, you know, all of those aren't all thrown in that same pill. Um, And so whole foods still going to be better if you can do it. Um, you know, other things that, that would be good, you know, supplement wise, you know, fish oil, if, if you don't eat a lot of fish, um, you know, so a lot of these are, are like ifs, you know, fish oil, if you don't eat a lot of fish, um, I can't remember if we talked about it in the paper or not, but vitamin D and calcium are not a bad idea. If you aren't eating, you know, aren't able to eat dairy, um, or aren't eating as much dairy, um, just due to whatever reason during prep. Um, and then other than that, you know, things like caffeine as necessary before a workout, um, the data is kind of crazy. The caffeine dose is pretty high that that's required to see a benefit to strength training to actually see a benefit. 500 MGs, yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty high. And so, um, you know, 
I, you know, I personally take caffeine before workouts, but it's not that quantity. It's just enough to wake me up a little bit. And, and yeah, I, I don't think I can, t- I can't tolerate that high of a caffeine intake. And so there's a tolerance thing there too. Um, yeah. Other things would be creatine monohydrate, um, beta alanine and citrulline malics are really interesting one yeah, because it's, for it's, a while, it's, it's, they're, they're a, yeah, the data is, <laughs> you know, now there's a couple new studies that show it, it doesn't necessarily um, might not be as good as we had thought. And so I, you know, I, I don't know, like for a while there, like every citrulline Mali study was good. And now there's a couple that weren't. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's like anything though. I mean, a lot of the supplement studies are, are small, you know, relatively small. And so, um, in training studies too, you know, not, you don't. And so, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't sat down and actually tried to figure this out in any of these studies, but, you know, I, I took a good number of grad level stats classes where you talk about effect sizes and, and sample sizes needed to see an effect and, and, and all of those things. And, um, you know, some of these studies, you know, there may be some statistical issues with them being too small, um, which is where I think meta-analysis can be, you know, somewhat of a more powerful tool. It's, it has its limitations, absolutely. But I, I think, you know, the fact in a meta-analysis, you take a bunch of studies that are on the same topic, you group them together and you try to get an answer like on does this work or, you know, does this have a benefit? And yeah, there are limitations. These studies might be a little bit different, things like that. But um, they can it can at least increase your sample size and get you, a, you know, some more number. And but again, it comes with its own limitations and, and nothing's perfect. But um, that's just something to keep in mind with the citrulline malate stuff that's come out recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think those were the main ones we, we discussed in the paper and, and, you know, I think there were others that we mentioned, but I think we mentioned HMB, but that, that hasn't really been, you know, panned out either, either in athletes or in some of the work I did in clinical populations. It, it, I, we didn't see it do anything. That was one of my next questions, uh, were that, you know, obviously you studied these supplements, gave recommendations, have things changed since then? Like the, you mentioned the citrulline, yeah. are there any others or, you know, any that you didn't recommend that now you, you know, since, uh, you know, further findings, uh, you know, hedging your bets and it may be a good idea to supplement with? Um, not really. I mean, those are the main ones I would start with. And then, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll have clients ask me about, you know, this supplement or that supplement. And, you know, if it's things like glutamine, I'll be like, don't, don't waste your money. You know, there, there's not a whole lot of evidence there, you know, you know, and so if it's something clearly like it doesn't work, like I'll be like, Hey, don't, you know, waste your money. But then we have these kind of gray area ones, right. Where, you know, we have this list where it's like, yeah, these, these have pretty good evidence that they work. You know, we have this list where it's like, ah, you know, there these pretty much don't. And then you kind of have these gray area supplements, you know, and, and so people, you know, email me with something. I'll be like, God, I don't even really know. And so a lot of times I'll go check out examine.com, you know, cause it's a lot, you know, I'll, sometimes it'll just be something obscure off the wall that I'm like, I don't even know. And, you know, there might be something where there's very little research done, maybe some very preliminary evidence it may do something. And so for supplements like that, it's, you, you know, my recommendation is usually, all right, well, a couple of things weigh the risk to reward you know is there any evidence it could hurt you um you know if, if the worst thing it does and then the second thing is what is it you know do you have the money to spend on it you know do you want to spend the money on it yeah you know because if the worst thing it's going to do is just burn you know burn through some of the cash in your wallet um you know that sucks but it you know it, it's you're, you're at least not hurting your health yeah. You know, and so the, those gr- kind of gray area middle ones, it's like, well, you know, it's it's kind of up to you. But I I don't spend much money on supplements. I'm not a very big supplement guy. Um, you know, I, I take pretty much what I listed, you know, plus obviously protein bars, powders, but I, I consider those more food. Yeah, likewise. I've, uh, well, I literally haven't taken, uh, you know, and it sounds like I'm being uh, quite ignorant, I guess, uh, disregarding my health, but I haven't taken a multivitamin, a fish oil, um, I haven't taken creatine, 
or anything like that for the better part of three years. I've started my contest prep. I have caffeine, yeah. protein, that's it. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. you, you let the diet do its thing and provided yeah. you know, nothing pops up, you should be good. But, you know, people like to yeah, dabble in these things and make sure they're ticking all the boxes, sometimes more so for, you know, peace of mind than anything else. But, uh, yeah, one of the other things that, you know, you guys talked about uh, in this study was metabolic adaptation. And I think... You know, our understanding of this has improved significantly since then. Yes. You know, we had the whole yes. metabolic damage movement and it was like this horrible thing that contest prep athletes went through and then the solution was reverse dieting and like we went through all of that. Um, and I think we're now on the other side. We have a better understanding of it. But I guess we know it's reversible um, and it's primarily from a reduction in uh, NEAT. So, you know, the, the drop in the number of steps that we're taking daily um, outside of formal activity. Um, and can you outline based on your research, you know, the magnitude of this reduction um, in response to lower calorie intakes as well as, um, you know, I guess what implications this has during a prep, you know, like how do we mitigate this, manage this so that we don't see, you know, maintenance calories come down, you know, significantly closing that energy deficit, making, you know, fat loss stall and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about, you know, I guess where, where adaptation comes from. So, you know, when we talk about basically, you know, total daily energy expenditure, you know, it's always, we always say it's made up of four things, you know, it's made up of someone's basal metabolic rate, which is, you know, I heard, I heard it described once as enough to keep the lights on and, and that's, you know, a pretty good way like to describe that. it. It's, you know, it, it, you just, it's laying in bed. If you laid in bed, did nothing all day, um, how many calories would you burn if you just to maintain your weight, you know, just and do a normal body bodily processes. Um, so basal metabolic rate. Second thing is thermic effect of food. So about 10% of the food you eat is digested or is used to digest and absorb other food. Uh, exercise activities, third component. Um, so that's, you know, pretty self-explanatory. And then the fourth component, like you said, is neat. So it's non-exercise activity. Um, some of that need is going to be things that are voluntary, like you said, like walking around, you know, movement, um, you know, voluntary movement goes down um, and or voluntary movement makes up need. And also, um, you know, involuntary movement, like twitching, fidgeting, things like that also make up need. That's also, um, you know, non-exercise activity. And so if you look at each each one of those in some way kind of goes down when you diet, right? I mean, basal metabolic rate goes down. It's not as much as most people think. Um, I, if I'm remembering right, I mean, even in severe, you know, cuts, I think it's only like 20% or something like that. But I mean, it, it still goes down. I mean, you, and it would make sense. There's less of you, there's less, you know, tissue to support. Um, it would make sense that that would go down. Um, thermic effect of food, goes down kind of just because of the fact you're eating less food, you know, there's, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you eat a high protein, high fiber diet, but it's, assuming you're doing that all year round, I mean, it, it's probably going to go down when you're dieting, um, exercise activity, you know, goes up usually during prep, you know, you're, you're usually doing more exercise. Um, there's less of you though, moving around when you do it. Um, so, you know, the, the amount you would burn, per, you know, minute of yeah. running at whatever speed would, would go down. But, but as a whole, it goes up, you're doing more cardio, you know, training volume may also decrease need to, you know, decrease later in prep potentially. So it might, you know, that might reduce it some, but as a whole, typically you're doing some more adding some cardio. And so that goes up. Um, and then non-exercise activity, yeah, it goes down. Um, and so there isn't a, and it, it seems to be, that's the, of the four, you know, kind of main area, you know, that make up your, your total daily energy expenditure, that seems to be the one that has the largest decrease in, you know, during prep. Um, and so some of that's twitching, fidgeting. You can't do anything about that. Like you can't, can't make a person twitch or fidget more. Put that um, in the program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, this, you know, a hundred extra twitches today. Like that's, that's not a, that's not an option. And so, you know, um, you know, so since you can't twitch or fidget more, um, you know, you can control some of that walking around voluntary movement, though, you know. And so if you think about it, any of us who have been stage lean, I think we've all had this the point where, like, it, your legs feel heavy and it's just difficult to, like, walk. Like, when you have striated glutes and you're super lean and you're pushing and it's just, you know, you feel terrible. 
And so, you know, you move, it makes sense. You move less, you know, your body's trying to conserve energy. It's, it's awesome for evolution. You know, it helped us stay alive as a species during times there, you know, wasn't a lot of food available, but it really sucks, um, you know, for someone who's dieting now because it's kind of fighting against you. Um, But, you know, we've all had that situation. So if you think about it, you know, you're really, really lean, you're pushing hard for loss. Um, and you start, you just move less, you feel tired, sluggish. And so you just don't move around as much. Um, I, I, I can, you know, I think all of us can completely relate to that. And so one thing you can do to overcome some of that, um, is incorporate step counts into your prep. And this is something I've done the last couple, started doing the last couple over the last couple of years with clients. And it is amazing how much of a difference it can make. Um, it's, it's something as stupid as counting. So like I used to think for years, oh, you know, like I, I would sit in talks about accelerometers at conferences. There was, there was one time I presented data at a conference and for some reason there were five talks on accelerometers and one talk on my BFR research and yeah. how, somehow we ended up in the same sex, section. I'm like, accelerometer, this is stupid. Like, I don't need to know about like counting steps, whatever, you know, that was my thought process. But no, it matters. Like it really makes a difference. And so it, it still amazes me how much of a difference it can make. And so it, uh, you know, one thing you can do is just have someone track their steps while living life as usual for a week or two. You know, have them include days they work, weekend days where they're not working. Get an idea of, all right, where's their steps at on average? And then just set a minimum that's, I usually set it just a hair above that, you know, to start. And all right, we, we got a minimum. You're going to have to move each day. And then the nice thing is throughout prep, now, what can you adjust? You can adjust, obviously you can take someone's food down, you can take someone's cardio up, you know, to create a deficit, or you can, you can increase their steps some more. And oftentimes I, I like using that step component, especially, you know, at first if I can, because I mean, at some point, much like, you know, you can't just decrease food forever just so someone can't do cardio. At, at some point, like it's gonna be unreasonable to take their food lower, you know, they gotta eat something. Um, same with the step side of things for someone's schedule at some point you can't add more and you, you got to do some cardio, but I really like the, the step counts and trying to get away with a little bit more there and a little bit less on, you know, the moderate and higher intensity cardios. If I can, I mean, most people still have to do some cardio during prep. Um, but if you can get away with a little bit of it with, with some more, you know, need more walking around during the day. I think it has a few advantages, you know, one, you can do it anywhere. You know, we're talking about adherence here because adherence still matters. And so people can walk around, you know, it doesn't require a gym. You can do it whenever, wherever there's, you know, no specific way you have to block it together, piece it together. Um, I also like the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's low intensity. Um, and so, you know, for a while I, I used to be, you know, big on hit cardio and, and then I realized oh, that uh, you can only re- you can, yeah, you can only, you can only recover from so much. I'll still have clients do a hit, but it may only be a day or two days. You know what I mean? There, 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 there's only so much they can actually recover from, you know, it, it's not four days. <laughs> you know, I, I actually had a prep where I did four days a hit a week and I trained legs twice a week. I, my wow. leg workouts were terrible by the end, <laughs> but that's what everyone was doing about that time. Yeah. That would have been um, about 2012, 12, 13. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, but that, that, you know, based on the data, you know, that's what everyone was doing. And again, you know, I, but I, I, I like the lower intensity stuff because, okay, so maybe, so if I, you know, if I have someone not worry about steps, they were just dieting for a show, maybe they have to get up to five, six sessions of cardio a week. But if I have them worry about steps also, and we have like a step minimum each day, maybe we can get away with only like three sessions of cardio a week at the worst of their yeah. prep, you know? And so when we think about performance in the gym, which is still the focus, it's going to be a lot easier to recover and have a good performance lifting doing two or three days of cardio a week with just walking around more throughout the day than it is having to do five or six sessions of cardio a week. Yeah, there's just less interference and a few brilliant points there in that, you know, what gets measured gets managed and, you know, the Mm -hmm. research and the findings, you know, from your paper, I think, you know, have all uh, coincided to help people realize that this whole neat thing is something we should measure and then obviously we need to manage that, you know, during the contest prep to make sure that we're not, um, you know, seeing implications in terms of our ability to make consistent progress. And the step counting is definitely one of them. I think it's starting to rise in popularity, but I still think that this is a very unknown, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, method for, you know, monitoring neat levels uh, amongst bodybuilding communities. I think it's still, um, you know, in its infancy, and I, I 
it will be great to see people starting to pay more attention to that. And a case study that I have just from one of my athletes last year, this was phenomenal. He plateaued, uh, he stalled out for about, you know, 10 days and he was like, you know, I've been eating the same, adherence has been spot on and this guy's a soldier so I, I, I could trust his reporting on his diet and I said, okay, you know, what were your steps? Like, you know, tell me what your steps were because he was tracking his steps but, you know, we, were, we weren't monitoring that as closely, you know, during that phase um, just because he was, you know, starting to mentally, you know, dwindle a little bit towards the end of it. So we, we just started to pay attention to the diet and, you know, addressing things there. And his steps had dropped from 12,000 to 6,000 over the yeah. course of that 10 days. And then I said to him, okay, man, I said, look, I know that you're tired. I know that you're, you know, you're hungry and all these things. I said, we're not making an adjustment to your diet. I said, I just want you to bring your steps back up to where they need to be. And then whoosh, he lost a kilo yeah. in the next three days. And it was like, yeah. bang, like he just, you know, dropped some additional water, yeah. like, you know, fat mass, obviously, whatever else, uh, yeah. you know, gut residue just from moving more, all that kind of stuff. And it was just a brilliant point, um, you know, in affirming what we've learned about NEAT through, you know, studies like yours. Yeah, it's crazy too. I've, I've used it also. So I, I had a not, I've seen it like in non-competitors. So a lot of times with a non-competitor, I, you know, things are a little looser, you know, you, you may not be tracking exact macros. You might be tracking, you know, calories and protein, or, you know, you, you might, you know, a lot of times I don't have my non-competitors monitor steps. Like we, we don't want to, you know, we want to keep it to something they can, they can do rather, you know, than something that's crazy, you know, and, and contest prep's crazy, but it's not meant to be, you know, where your end goal is not meant to be sustained, you know, where your end point in, you know, a non, for a non-competitor who's dieting is meant to be sustained. So we, we need to take sustainable approaches. So a lot of times I don't have them track steps, you know, because it, it might be something that's cumbersome. You know what I mean? That might be something we add in later on. You know, that you don't want to throw everything at a non-competitor right away um, because adherence is number one. And so uh, I had a non-competitor who did a cut successfully. We didn't monitor steps at all. Um, had to do a little bit of cardio. You know, we dropped food. Coming back off the cut, bumped him back up to where I thought maintenance should pretty much be, or maybe he was just maybe, I thought, oh, we'll get him back to about maintenance. We'll kind of just walk food up from there and see where can we get this yeah. thing up? You know, yeah. Where can we get his calories up to, to hold this weight? You know, he just wants to hold, you know, around here, you know, where, where do we got it? You know, where can we get to? Um, so I bump his intake up and, and I only bumped it up like 300 calories a day. Cause I was like, I don't want to, you know, I just was trying to, where goal was to hold weight and he wasn't at a place that was unsustainable. So if we increased his intake a little slower, so be it. And so he started gaining like on that. And I was like, the hell is going on? You know, like you should not be, you know what I mean? Like there's no reason that you, you were losing and 300 calories more you're gaining. And so we start looking at his steps and, you know, I just had him start tracking his steps. I was just curious, like, you know, where is your steps counts, you know? And he started giving me numbers like four or 5,000 a day, which is pretty low, but not uncommon for someone. I mean, you've probably seen it. People who work sedentary jobs. A lot of times yeah. you see five, 6,000 a day. And, you know, someone like me who works from home, I mean, you know, it might be two or 3,000 if I don't make an effort to make it higher, um, yeah. and, you know, and have an off day from the gym. Lucky you went to all and those so, uh, solarometer conferences. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, and so, you know, his, his steps were super low. And so all we did was bump him up to, I think, six or 6,000, maybe 7,000 a day. And so, you know, all, um, you know, all we, all we really were doing is just bumping it up a little bit. And just from doing that, all of a sudden, like he stopped gaining at that point and we were able to walk his intake up an extra like three or 400 calories a day, you know, just from getting a couple extra thousand extra steps a day, you know? And, and so it was crazy just how much of it, you know what I mean? Of a difference that made, you know, and, and, you know, because and it, what was crazy to me is, is like I said, I, I, I still don't quite know why we bumped it. His weight went up. And at first I thought, oh, it's water glycogen, you know, whatever. But then it went up more. And I was like, you know, and, you know, all I can figure is neat because then all of a sudden when we started actually worrying about his neat, he could handle a few more hundred calories a day. Yeah. And I think the more attention people pay to this, you know, the better, you know, they'll find themselves adhering to the diet because they'll be able to eat that little bit more. Um, do that little bit less, uh, you know, formal cardio, which, you know, is a bit laborious and arduous at times. 
Um, so definitely some valuable take-home points uh, from that, Peter. And you know, I guess um, you know prior to your case study, um, I want to talk about a different uh, paper now. Um, there was yeah. the uh, Russo, Russo and others uh, in 2013, yes. and they did a study on a natural bodybuilder, and they uh, measured things like uh, resting heart rate, testosterone, yeah. like uh, thyroid hormones, cortisol. And uh, they uh, they use the uh, the PAMS uh, mood disturbance uh, test to assess you know changes in uh, obviously mood status as well as all strength and all this kind of stuff. So what I wanted to ask you was you know obviously this study was uh, preceding your case study, and mm-hmm. you know they obviously looked at a whole host of you know physiological markers and like we were speaking about before the show, um, you know I guess these are the ones that that matter quite significantly to bodybuilders. You know, we had it like it was, I remember off the top of my head, it was between a 70 and 80% uh, reduction in testosterone levels. You know, T3 was down like by 50%. uh, T4 was a a little bit less. Uh, Cortisol increased, you know, by almost 100%. Like all these things just, and mood disturbance was like through the roof. I remember if if I remember correctly, (laughs) over like 500% uh, or something along those lines. But anyway, I'm not a researcher. I just remember the, the whole host of shitstorm adaptations that that uh, happen in a contest prep, um, and obviously you know now our job as coaches and practitioners is to you know there's only so much we can actually control there, but you know we need to do our best to like we mentioned earlier you know keep our health for as long as possible um, and not cause these things to come on quicker than they need to. Um, but. What I wanted to know was, you know, your case study looked at cardiovascular markers and a whole different set of, uh, you know, I guess, adaptations from a contest prep. Um, can you explain why this was the case and why that what that was important and what you found yeah. from this paper? So I guess uh, what's really interesting is we actually were collecting data for both these studies at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I, I competed. Yeah. Yeah, so like contest date for me was uh, summer of 2012, and I believe the other contest date was like uh, September of 2012. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fall of 2012. And so theirs got published before ours, but that's the way the publication process, you know, it, it doesn't always go super quick and smooth all the time. Um, but I mean, we collected data right around the same time. We found out we we actually know each other, like the all, you know what I mean? Like, and so, like, you just, to, just, oh, you didn't compete together, did you? No, no, we didn't compete against, but I mean, we research groups all yeah, knew yeah, yeah. each other. And so we uh, just through conversation found out we were pretty much doing the exact same thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think theirs had a little bit more funding than ours did. Yeah. Um, we had no money. So like when we went to my advisor and we said, hey, we have this idea. Can we do this side study like on my contest prep and just monitor physiological changes? There's nothing like this in the literature, you know. It, we could probably publish it, you know, and, and, you know, couple, you know, few, three of us grad students got together and, and, you know, that was kind of, we, we got everything organized. And so we were told, yes, you can do it. Uh, but it can't be at a time of day that, uh, you know, the labs are, are used by funded studies and it can't, you we're not, we're not putting any you know money towards this. It needs to be things that are, are free. Essentially. You know what I mean? Like we, yeah. we don't have any money for this. And we're like, all right, so it was, I took measurements every other, every other Sunday morning, uh, you know, every other Sunday morning at, I believe, 7 a.m. Uh, I was in the lab fasted with two yeah. other grad students, um, you know, and, and we did we did two, three hours of measurements on me at 7 a.m. every other Sunday morning wow. because that was the time we knew that nobody would be in the lab, you know, using the equipment. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, as far as what we measured, it was stuff that we we could measure without any money, um, you know. So it was all the cardiovascular equipment we had, the DEXA, um, VO2. Yeah. Uh, we we looked at um, you know some of the but the we looked at some blood markers, but the blood markers we looked at um, seem pretty random, and that's because they are. Um, it, it was basically other assays that one of us were running for another funded study that we had like some space on the plate for essentially. So like it was, Hey, I'm running an Eliza kit on, uh, you know, CRP. I got some extra wells. And so I, you know, I got my, you know what I mean? So I threw some of my case study blood on there, you know? So, 
Um, you know, and so that that's basically how that study was done. And, you know, we didn't have funding. You know, these, yeah. I think that's one thing a lot of people don't realize who yeah, haven't exactly. done research that it costs money. This stuff's expensive. Um, you know, how many hundreds and thousands of dollars, you know, research costs to, you know, get a good study. Um, I, I wrote an article for DeNovo last year, actually, along these lines of um, DeNovo Nutrition about uh, difficulties in creating the perfect study. And so I came up with the absolute perfect study and then walked through the process and then, you know, came up, you know, basically, of, and then here's the end result. So like when you see that end result of what they actually did, it was because of all of these issues along the way, like funding and approval and getting people to actually do what you want them to do. And you know what I mean? It, 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 it it's not, uh, not as simple as people may think. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's super easy, you know. You see it online all the time, right? The the keyboard warriors on Facebook. Well, why didn't they do this or why didn't they do that? And usually, they've thought of those things. I mean, these people are doing research are pretty smart. Usually, you know, they they think of these things, but there's just limitate. You know, yeah. you know, I, I could design an awesome study if you you give me five million dollars, I can probably determine. You know, give me a bodybuilding question, I can probably determine an answer. But you know, and and it would be pretty definitive. You know what I mean? I can do yeah. state of the art, everything, control absolutely everything, you know, make all my participants live somewhere where I can control all their environment and everything. You know what I mean? If you have that kind of money, but it, it just doesn't, you know, there's not money in getting people jacked. I mean, you know, like I, I mentioned before, I, I did, my dissertation was on HMB supplementation, but it was looking at muscle loss in dialysis patients um, because, you know, you can get funding and people I don't, I don't want to say serious. care, but people, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bigger issue. Um, you know, muscle wasting in a clinical population is a lot bigger issue than, mm. um, you know, you or I wanting to get jacked and be huge on stage, you know? So they're just, you know, that's where the funding is. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad I asked that question because I, because I was curious and, you know, I had, uh, my suspicions that, you know, it put, would potentially have been, you know, like a, you know, resources issue or something like that. And I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's always good to hear the other side of the coin because, you know, as someone, um, you know, who pays attention to the research, you know, sometimes, you know, I find myself thinking, you know, why didn't they look at this? And, you know, we need to look, yeah. be looking at these things. Um, and I guess it's great for, you know, those practitioners who, you know, are wanting to be evidence-based to realize these things so that they can, you know, better understand you know, why, you know, the science is the way it is. Um, because, yeah. you know, like ev everything, it's it's not perfect, um, but it, it gives us a starting point and, you know, it, it allows us to ask different questions over time, um, you know, which is where I wanted to actually end things, Peter, was, you know, what is, you know, if you were to run another, you know, case study, you know, what would be the things now that you would do differently besides get $5 million? And, yeah. <laughs> and where would you, you know, want to look at nutrition? Would you want to look at training, you know, the physiological changes, uh, psychology, like what things do you think would have the greatest benefit to the bodybuilding community, um, moving forward in 2018 and beyond? Yeah. I mean, I think where we need to probably move into next is looking at, and, and there's been some of this, Eric Trexler had a study come out recently where they, they're looking at more than just one person, you know, and instead of just like, you know, just me or just, you know, one person, you know, we have probably half a dozen case studies that have come out, you know, since mine, you know, and, and it's, but they're all just one person following, you know, that person throughout prep. And so I think getting more of these studies where you're starting to look at more people, you know, I, I think, um, Eric's study was really interesting. I don't know if you've, you've seen that study. It was with, you know, he's at North Carolina with Abby Smith Ryan, but their, their lab um, followed competitors. They measured them the week before, um, you know, week before the show, like a couple days after the show and three months later and in, in a several bodybuilders. And, and you could actually see some trends and actually make some conclusions, you know, better conclusions off that data, you know. You know, they, they found that, you know, across the board, most of the weight gain initially after a show was water glycogen, but then most of the weight gain over the next three months was fat, which isn't a bad thing. You got to gain fat back, but they interestingly Animal found rebounds. That, Yeah, but that what they actually found, though, is that hormone levels didn't, if, if no. the higher fat gain, faster gain didn't lead to fat, better hormone rebound. It was somewhere in the middle that did going super fast or super slow. 
um, wasn't the answer. And so, um, you know, it's, it, you know what I mean? It's it, things like that where, you, you know, an individual case study would never pick that up because all you would have seen with one person is you would have seen in those three months post show, they gained some fat. Well, yeah, you know, like most, but you, you know what I mean? So when you start getting more people, you can start to see more um, trends, you know, and we can start looking at, all right, well, you know, how about, you know, how are different rates of loss going to affect, you know, the end product, um, you know, different, maybe different approaches during contest prep or different approaches in the post-show period, you know, like, you know, Eric's study started to kind of show what the fat, you know, and, you know, it, actually comparing um, people are actually getting enough, yeah, or at least getting enough numbers to, you know, say a little bit more than, than you can off an individual case study, um, you know, and I think that's going to be, you know, probably the next step and, and really helpful. But again, that's going to be difficult because, you know, I, I mean, what bodybuilding, it's going to be hard to do bodybuilding research because what on, on people dieting for a show, because what competitor wants you to control their variables, you know, like they don't, you know, so it's going to be more monitor, you know what I mean? It's going to be easier to yeah. monitor probably what they're doing and just see what happens in response. It's that's probably a more realistic thing that, you know, that researchers can do. Um, than actually saying you, you know, actually having adjusting each person's plan and things because, you know, bodybuilders aren't going to go for that um, <laughs> unless you pay them a lot of money. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's probably where, where things would probably go next. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, would like to see more, you know, studies of the, you know, a multitude of people as opposed to just a single case study. Although, the case studies, you know, they, they lay that foundation of, you know, they do. wow, Absolutely. we saw this, now let's investigate this across multiple people. Um, and I, I think, you know, listeners need to know that. And something that I, you know, have been thinking about when I wrote this question for you, you know, I I really love the psychology of all of this, as I'm sure you can sort of tell, you know, as, as we were discussing. Um, I would love to see a case study on bodybuilders um, investigating mood disturbance in comparing a rigid versus a more flexible diet and, um, yeah. you know, see, see how that unfolds, you know, both, you know, during and post, you know, um, yeah. I think that would be cool. I think that would, you know, further solidify the utility of, you know, flexible diet or potentially, you know, and, and measure adherence and all these kind of things. Like, I think there could be a number of ways that, you know, we could do it. But there was one of the questions that I thought would be um, yeah. cool to look at. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that's how research goes in general, you know, is you start with usually some small cohort and then you go to something larger, you know. And so, um, you know, I, you know, that's how you get funding and, and whatnot. And, and so, um you know, like for my dissertation, we did a, a small study looking at, you know, there was some concern that HMB and someone who has kidney disease, it wouldn't be cleared quite as well because, you know, fraction, it was, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I think it's like 30% is cleared by the kidney somewhere in that ballpark. And so there was concern that, hey, that there might be some issue. And so we supplemented, got approval to supplement a small amount of people with HMB, you know, and we measured blood levels of HMB and showed that it, it was, you know, clear, you know, it, it, it wasn't an issue because, um, you know, the vast majority was still cleared in the liver and their liver was fine. Um, and so, um, you know, but we were able to use that data then and say, well, here's our rationale for the study. We've, we've supplemented people. We have some of this data here. There's a strong rationale that it may be helpful. Um, and even my study wasn't super huge, but, you know, had my study. So we looked at roughly 20 in a group, 15, 20 in a group, you know, had that shown it was effective, then you go try to get that multi-million dollar grant and, you know, do your long-term one year long intervention in a hundred, 200 plus people, you know what I mean? Like, um, and so that, that's how research works. You know, you, you start with something small and then you kind of work your way, um, you know, up and, and you see this in the bodybuilding world and a lot of the protein research. Um, you know, most of the first studies are acute studies. They, they get half a dozen people, 10 people. Um, they do, you know, the tracer data. They look at protein synthesis rates in different conditions and say, huh, this might actually be better than this. And then they get a bigger grant and they can actually like do the interventional study to do that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important because people always have, uh, you know, these, 
I guess, you know, feelings of disdain to, you know, science, you know, when they don't understand, you know, what goes on behind, behind the scenes, you know, they'll read the paper and be like, oh yeah, but there's all these limitations and, you know, they didn't look at this and this. And you know, I think the more that people understand, you know, what actually goes on with you guys, um, they can, you know, better appreciate you know, things for what they are and understand that it's an ever evolving, you know, uh, process. But Peter, I'm uh, super glad to have had you on the show, man. It was really enjoyable. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Make sure you check Peter out at Fit Body Physique. He puts out some great content all over uh, the interwebs. And uh, yeah, he's a, an awesome coach. So he's pretty full from what he was telling me uh, before the show. But if you are looking for a coach, um, I definitely recommend Peter. And his work speaks volumes of the quality um, of both knowledge and experience that he has. So... Guys, we'll speak to you all next time. And again, thank you, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me.